Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Sashi Mormon. We're at Evening Land Vineyards in Salem. It's, uh, excuse me, Seven Springs Vineyard in Salem. I guess both. It's May 24th, 2022. Sashi, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question to get us started is why wine? Why wine? Um, well, uh, you know, in the, the, the difference between being interested in the wine industry in the U.S. compared to places like Europe, where families um, share wine with their children at an earlier age, um, or if your parents or grandparents were in the industry, you would have been exposed. Um, here in the U.S., you have a lot of people who are in the wine industry whose families were never mm-hmm. involved mm-hmm. in the wine business. And so, unfortunately, um, Wine is one of those subjects where here you don't really start your journey on it until you're in most states 21, um, uh, just because of the regulations around alcohol. Mm-hmm. So for me, I remember my parents drinking wine. Um, I remember they were interested in it. Um, so it was kind of, um, it was interesting to me just because it was off limits. You know, like, what is that? Um, I, um, you know, being a product of Gen X, um, I was, uh, you know, influenced by, um, at that time, you know, um, status symbols were, were very important, uh, to people and wine definitely had a, had a status. Um, and so that was curious Mm -hmm. to me, like, so... You know, why is that expensive? Why is that desirable? Um, I also had a huge interest in food. So I, in college, um, I got my degree in geography. Uh, but I spent all my summers working in restaurants cooking. Um, I spent most of my time in college cooking. Um, and I tried to figure out how to use my degree to do something um, closer to what I was interested in, which was cooking. And, and that led me to wine, because mm-hmm. there's a very strong correlation between wine and geography. So I did my dissertation on Zinfandel. Uh, and it's interesting, I, I, by just reading a few books, I ascertained quite quickly that you know, there's, a, there's a strong relationship between people and place and wine. And that fit right into my, my degree. And my, um, the professor who I was assigned to was really excited about the paper. And I uh, traveled to Napa Valley, and I interviewed uh, Joel Peterson, who was at that time still the owner of Ravenswood, and um, 
and I forgot his last name, but he owned, uh, Seps was his last name, he owned uh, Storybook Mountain, which was another Zinthin Bill producer, and um, it was really, it was fun. Um, they're very different, they were very different people doing really different um, work with Zinfandel. And I think that was my first real understanding of like how um, the human element uh, plays a, an enormous factor. You know, everyone talks about different appellations, different grapes, um, but there isn't, we, in the industry we downplay the, the, the person a lot. We, we try and uphold the idea of terroir, um, the idea of noble varieties, um, and, and there's less focus on the people. Mm -hmm. And I think during my thesis, I really realized how, even though I knew very little about wine, I could taste how different the wines were, and it was, it was obvious to me it was more than just place. The person was having a huge impact on how the wine um, was made. So um, I pursued cooking after college, but I ended up working for a gentleman uh, running a small restaurant uh, who also bought all the wine for the restaurant. He was very academic about it, um, so studied everything that we ever purchased. I mean, was, was, was very interested in understanding where the wine came from, who made it, um, what its history was, um, and so it was a, it was a priceless education mm -hmm. because we it was one of these restaurants where we did family dinner after service, not before. So after the last guest left, we would cook for the whole crew, kitchen and front of the house, and we'd all sit down together. And Jonathan was always opening bottles of wine, and um, yeah, I was. I was definitely hooked. So, um, yeah. So before we get into wine, I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned sort of food from a young age and cooking from a young age as an interest. So tell me about what interested you about food and cooking and, and you mentioned kind of how you pursued that first. Tell me about sort of how that pursuit, where that pursuit took you, the pursuit of food and cooking, where it took you. Michelin star restaurants and chefs and chef lights, you know. And I worked at a French restaurant, La Miche, um, in Bethesda, Maryland, where I went to high school. And um, but I I was very fortunate that um, I went to Vassar College, uh, and uh, man that I met there. Um, was also from Washington D.C. and he was working at a, at a organic farm. Hmm. Uh, and he said, "You know, I deliver vegetables to all these restaurants in Washington D.C. And I can tell you, this is one restaurant that is not like any other restaurant in Washington D.C." And I said, "Oh, what's that?" And he said, "It's called the Obelisk." And so I looked it up, and I uh, I went and and reach out to the owner, Peter Paston, who is now uh, my business partner in one of my wineries and a, and a very close friend. 
um, godfather to my daughter. Um, and sure enough, he was uh, not like any other chef that I had met, and certainly was running a restaurant that was not like other restaurants that I had that I worked in. It was just very, um, it was just really smart. Um, like he's he's very intelligent, and his staff was um, so like. Um, culturally interested in a more diverse way. So music in the kitchen was always, you know, either, you know, just, just a wide range of music. And then we'd listen to the news. And just, it was unlike other kitchens that I worked in. Um, everyone was very thoughtful. And Peter is a, a gifted cook, one of the best cooks I've ever met. and. Um, also had a great appreciation for wine, and um, he, I learned more about wine when I was working in New York, um, but Peter was a huge influence in helping me understand that, um, that there's a big difference between kind of commercial industrial wine and highly crafted artisan wine. So he, it was through him that I understood that both at the restaurant cooking level and at the wine level. And um, I quickly figured out that you know most restaurants, even very fancy restaurants, operate very much like their assembly line, <laughs> almost industrial in its approach without a lot of creativity from the rest of the kitchen staff, except for you know maybe the chef. But really, it was like a cafeteria. Mm -hmm. It was a set menu. Um, maybe it changed seasonally. Most likely not. A lot of restaurants have the same items on their menu the whole year. Mm -hmm. And so as a cook, you it was quite robotic. Mm -hmm. um, versus Peter's restaurant where the menu changed every day. The restaurant I worked in New York where the menu changed every day and we we shop for our our produce at the farmers market and we shop for our fish at the fish market in Fulton Street. This was the kind of interaction that I I, I really felt connected to. Mm -hmm. That mm -hmm. the raw material and um, being skilled at always cooking whatever um, whatever you could find that was the best. So if you went to the farmer's market and there were beautiful mushrooms or beautiful turnips or beautiful ramps, whatever was in season and beautiful, that's what you bought and then that's what you cooked. Instead of a menu that you just executed day after day. And I think that was helpful in me being um, ready for the wine business. Mm -hmm. yeah. So as you were being introduced to wine, you mentioned obviously coming from a restaurant lens. Tell me about the, the process of sort of learning wine, educating yourself on wine, and also of, of selling it at that level. What, what, what did you have to know about wine in order to sell it? And what did you find was successful when it came to selling wine? I mean, I never want to go back to the restaurant business, um, but I miss it every day. Um, it's like smoking cigarettes, right? I miss it every day, but I never want to do it again. Um, 
it's it's just so wonderful. I mean, you are responsible for a couple of hours of you know people's utter joy. Um, and obviously, not everyone has a good time in a restaurant. You know, plenty of customers come in and they're not, not, not having a great time. No fault to the restaurant. Uh, but on those evenings when the kitchen is just synchronized and the front of the house is just doing a great job and the whole room is like happy and laughing and you're hearing the clinking glasses and the utensils on plates. Um, and people are drinking, and it's that atmosphere is magic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I knew that I, even though I didn't want to stay specifically in the restaurant business, I knew I wanted to be close to it. So I guess I'm, I guess I'm restaurant adjacent. <laughs> Wine business is a way to still be connected to the restaurant business, still be connected to that wonderful, hmm. that wonderful energy of hospitality, and also I, you know, I truly believe this. There's such thing as being a really good guest. <laughs> it's an art form that <laughs> is sadly lost on most people, um, but there is a thing as being a really great guest and, and a great um, customer. You know, coming in and being excited for the food and excited to try a wine that you never had before. Um, it's just, yeah, it's lovely. So when that kind of, those evenings when you talk about the kind of everything working right, um, what role does the wine play? Well, you know, um, I think as I've gotten older, I have, um, I appreciate now more the the, the power that wine has, and, and not specifically wine, really just alcohol. Um, you know, human beings are socially very awkward, right? Like, we constantly have a hard time connecting with other people, particularly people we don't know. Mm -hmm. um, uh, in fact, I think as creatures, you know, we have high, very high levels of anxiety uh, meeting people we don't know, trying to like ascertain their body language. Do they like me? Do they not like me? You know, should I be here? Am I wearing the right clothes? You know, am I, does anyone understand me? Or uh, and wine um, as a as a vehicle to deliver alcohol is the, in my opinion, the highest expression of alcohol. Um, just has a magical effect on making people feel more comfortable. Mm -hmm. It just, um, it relaxes people. It obviously inhibits a little bit of the social anxiety. Um, and people who normally um, maybe wouldn't have had a good time. I mean, I've seen it so many times at restaurants. And so many times just in my business, just, you know, being in the wine business and doing sales and working with clients and um, yeah, it just, if there's not wine on the table, it's a very different conversation. So you, you mentioned being kind of exposed to the sort of farm to table, sort of different style uh, at a time when that wasn't terribly common yet for, for consumers. Uh, as you were going forward and as you were as you started to sort of think about the next thing you were going to do, 
What was the sort of takeaway from that? What was what was the sort of philosophy around food and drink that you were taking away from your work in wine, and how did that kind of springboard you into the next phase of, of your work? Um, so I um, I left New York City in 1996, and and just decided I wanted to go try the wine business. Um, and it was very, I, I had, it's so easy to get a job in a restaurant because there's like millions of them. Um, and so I had very naively thought it would be similar to get a job in the wine industry. I was uh, uh, shocked when I came out west and just, I had, yeah, so wasn't formally trained in cooking, obviously wasn't formally trained in winemaking. And so my mode of entry was just to write letters uh, to people who I had heard um, were, you know, running great programs, either in kitchens or. Mm -hmm. When I did that in New York, uh, trying to find my first job uh, in the city working in a restaurant, I, you know, I was pleasantly surprised at how many people uh, responded mm -hmm. and asked me to come in, and just chat with them, and um, in the wine business, I got zero response. I mean zero, and I wrote to um, you know David Ponzi, Dick Ponzi, sorry, um, uh, and Jim Clendenin, um, a couple people in Napa Valley, just it was across from Oregon, even Washington State, um, and yeah, zero response. And but I'd already committed myself, so I said, well, I'll just drive out there and go actually like knock on the door. Mm -hmm. um, and I quickly learned that wineries are, for the most part, they're all understaffed. Um, the low margin aspect of our business um, results in wineries not being so different from a restaurant. Um, and. I just got very, very lucky. Um, Adam Tolmack, who is the owner of the Ojai Vineyard in Ojai, California, he and his wife Helen, uh, they had just had their um, first child, and they worked together in the winery, and she was not um, going to be able to participate mm -hmm. in, the, in, the two, in the 96 harvest. Um, as much as she had in the past. And so after I went and saw him, had lunch with him and his wife, he told me there wasn't a job, but then he called me three weeks later and said, you know what, we changed our mind. We could probably use some help. And so I was actually in Oregon trying to find a job and drove back. And I couldn't have asked for a better experience um, because it was a true apprenticeship. It was just me and Adam. <laughs> and he didn't have any vineyards at the time. So, and I think that that was to my advantage too. Um, I first, I feel like I learned the fundamentals, which is working in a cellar, mm -hmm. being a cellar rat. Mm -hmm. um, understanding wine from its really, its most kind of like basic building blocks, which is just making it. Mm -hmm. And Adam was a great winemaker. And he had a great cellar, and we drank a lot of really good wines, and worked together in the winery. And that first harvest, I remember uh, 
it was late, it was a late harvest, and we had a bunch of Syrah uh, that we had harvested from Bienecito. And at that time, Adam was doing uh, uh, kind of punch downs, fermentation management um, on a very regular interval over a 24 hour period. So there was always like a punch down to do at midnight. And so I remember it was at the very end of the harvest. It was like, it was, we were into November, it was cold outside. And um, I was in the barn doing punch downs. And he walked down the front of the house with a bottle of La Chapelle. I think it was 89. And he said, hey, you know, I just want to say thank you. It's been really great working with you this harvest. And I finished my punch downs, and he opened the bottle of wine, and we sat there. You know, stars are all out. I just, I, I was like, oh my god. Like, I am never leaving this <laughs> industry. It was just magic. Mm -hmm. um, and so I stayed there for five years. And I think that that, um, that, that helped me because um, I approached that job like I approached a kitchen job. They're very similar. You're just working with much bigger pieces of equipment. Um, you do a lot of washing. Mm -hmm. um, and and the, the application of what I learned cooking, which is how important the raw ingredients are, um, correlated you know, perfectly to winemaking. The quality of the grapes, you, you, you could be a great winemaker, but if you don't have the highest quality grapes, you're never going to make mm -hmm. the best wine. Was there anything, obviously you mentioned kind of the, the basis of the job, a lot of cleaning, a lot of manual labor, a lot of strange hours. What, what, what was attractive about that to you? What, what, what about that kind of grunt work made you want to keep doing it? Um, I, I think it's, uh, it's, not, it's not very intellectual, um, but there's a lot of skill. Um, and so learning all these new skills was really exciting. Like learning how to drive a forklift, learning how to rack wine, learning how to even how to fix things. Because um, equipment's always breaking, and it was just a whole new set of skills, a whole new set of experiences that really kept me very engaged. Um, I think once those that skill set, that that learning curve started to plateau, I started wanting to expand, mm -hmm. um, and so that's why I left in 2001 and went to go work um, for. Tom Stoltman, Tom and Marilyn Stoltman uh, in Ballard Canyon. They had a, a 220-acre piece of property with 80 acres of vineyard on it. And that was, my, that was my opportunity to then learn about the, the farming aspect, hmm. how to control the quality of the fruit. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Before I get to that, because I'm very curious about the, the, the farming part of things, um, I'm, tell me about the, what you learned about, you talked about the, the influence a person has. Yeah. Tell me about what you learned about that in those first kind of five years where you're just purely working with the fruit that's coming in. It's, you're not farming it, you're not. What was the influence that you saw being imparted in the winery? Um. Well, you know, you obviously see that in the restaurant business too. Um, uh, 
a lot of great restaurants are run by chefs that have pretty big personalities. Um, it's it, it's that you know it's kind of like it, it's like anything. Um, there's a, a reactive way of cooking, and there's a um, conceptual way of cooking, and I think it's the same with the wine business. There's reactive winemaking and there's conceptual winemaking, which is you have an idea of what kind of wine you want to make. Mm. And then you try and find the, the grapes, whether they're your own, and you figure out how to farm them in a way that achieves what you want. Um, uh, it could be in the cellar through hundreds of different decisions that you make and how you make the wine to achieve your goal. Um, but I think that's what, that's where I really understood that people who had a very strong conceptualization of what they wanted to make, um, and what you, whatever you want to call that, vision or, you know, inspiration, or, but if that element was, is very strong, um, and it was matched with highly um, uh, skilled technique in the winery and either the ability to work with great grapes because you purchase them or you find them yourself. When those things all match up, the wines are, mm -hmm. are special. So as you moved on to the next thing, then you mentioned kind of this now your first first experience with farming at that level. So so tell me about that. Tell me about the process of learning the farming and of what uh, what the kind of the biggest lessons for you or biggest takeaways were. I think it's it's was you know in the wine business, people are always I don't know they're always like it, it, it might be a it might be a youth thing too. Um, you know, you're looking for the silver bullet. You're looking for like the, well, is it because you do, you sort all your grapes, or is it because you do this long cold soak, or is it because you, you know, only do pump overs and not punch downs, or because you use these kinds of barrels? I mean, everyone's looking for like this, like, kind of secret element mm -hmm. that's going to differentiate their wine, um, make it special. and. In the vineyard, you do the same thing. You think in the beginning, oh, it's because I, you know, you know, branch lock all my shoots and everything is perfectly, you know, parallel positioned and you know, it's like, you know, thin the crop and or I irrigate a certain way if you're in California. Um, and I mean, I it took me a long time to learn it. I mean, it wasn't, it took me a very long time to learn that. It's not that those techniques are not important. They are, but they can only enhance what's already there. So if the grapes, if it's the wrong grape planted in the wrong place, which I would argue most of America's is in that position because the landscape is so young. You know, we, we unfortunately, um, I think as an industry, as a the domestic wine industry, 
we unfortunately don't embrace um, uh, changes very well in the wine industry. So, you know, we decide, well, Cabernet Sauvignon is what belongs in Napa Valley, and Pierre Noir is what belongs in Lab Valley. Well, why? Because someone in 1970 decided that? It's not long enough. Mm-hmm. It's not, um, it, it's, it's very premature. I understand from a marketing perspective um, that it's you know there's a there's a um, strong marketing advantage, mm-hmm. um, but I would like to see our industry be a little bit more open-minded and embrace embrace change and the people who are trying new things um, and keep an open mind that you know what. Okay, so my dad planted Syrah here, but maybe that's not really what belongs here. Mm -hmm. It's all part of the process. It's all part of the evolution. It's all part of trying to find that most sympathetic match between grape variety, soil, climate, Mm -hmm. and own personal winemaking style. Mm So at this point, did you have, when you came into that, that role in 2001, did you have a, a kind of an idea of this is the right way to farm, this is the wrong way to farm? My idea was to make 100 point wine. It's <laughs> pathetic. Um, but that was what was so, you know, Robert Parker was, was highly influential at that time. And uh, wineries, he, he, he made and, and destroyed wineries with his reviews. And so um, I think all of us uh, young winemakers were very preoccupied Mm -hmm. by scores, particularly for Robert Parker. And um, so do we make the wines for Robert Parker? I don't know. I don't think so. But we definitely um, held his values. Um, And some of them, which were very good, you know, like unfined, unfiltered, um, you know, wine is supposed to be delicious. Um, you know, he was reacting to a lot of insipid industrial wine. Um, and I think his instincts were spot on. I mean, there were a lot of people doing a disservice to wine um, <laughs> to make it more stable, make it more consistent, um, you know, real industrialization of wine. And he wanted to promote people who were making wine um, to for pleasure. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, he just had a very <laughs> somewhat specific uh, view of what that meant. Mm-hmm. Um, so no, I didn't. I mean, I was determined to um, dry farm, uh, achieve very low yields in the vineyard, spend way too much money in terms of, you know, farming it perfectly. Um, and then in a winery, you know, employing long cold soaks and lots of punch downs and, you know, really extracting the grapes and getting lots of color and concentration and weight, power. Um, what I didn't understand was that none of that at that time was matched with 
with grace and elegance and um, and you know levity. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, my the first winery I I started is Pedro Sassi, which I started in two thousand and three, and that is a um, that is a really fun exercise to taste from first vintage to current vintage because it's it's in a glass of wine the narrative arc of a what I think is typical young winemaker's journey going from power to elegance or, or learning how to bring elegance to power. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like a lot of young people at the beginning you just you just want to be loud. You want to play your music loud. You want to speak loudly. You've got all these ideas. You want everyone to listen to you. And then as you get older, you realize that um, you. what's most important is that um, people are paying attention to your wine because it's saying something very distinctive. Hmm. It doesn't taste like other people's wines. Hmm. And it asks the question, why? This is my favorite question from any customer. Why is your wine different? Well, I'm going to ask you that in a little while, so don't worry, because you had a chance to tell us about that. What prompted you to start your first wine, your first, um, own, your first own thing? You know, I think at the heart of it, um, uh, more than, I think I just I was always, um, going to be an entrepreneur. I think that that is, um, I don't think I could have put my finger on it um, in 2003, um, but I had started um, you know, traveling to Europe and visiting wineries and, and just really understanding that the European wine industry um, was, wonderfully rooted in history and tradition, but also completely constrained by that. And that, um, that one of the joys of being an American winemaker is that we can bring this amazing entrepreneurial spirit mm -hmm. to wine. Um, and to me, it's the, it's, it truly is the most exciting part. So when you started it, what was the vision for it? What, what, what were you trying to say uh, with it? For Pedro Sassi, I've always loved Syrah. Um, it was like one of the first wines from the Rhone Valley, or some of the first wines that really caught my attention. Uh, because I was in the restaurant business, and Syrah is probably the most um, gastronomic grape. When we, when, we, when we describe the flavors and aromas of most um, grape varieties, wines, we really focus on like fruit, you know, red fruits, lemon, citrus. Um, but with Syrah, you use descriptors like, you know, bacon fat and, you know, aged meat and olive, um, black pepper. These are all culinary. So to me, Syrah has this wonderful 
simpatico with food, mm. which is why it was the first wines that I really fell in love with. So Pietrasassi was an, just an homage to, to that grape and to pursuing really gastronomic wines. With the first for the first time being kind of all you and all all your decisions and all of your sort of your own personal terroir into this, what did you what what do you think of that? What 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 were those wines like and how how was your react what was your reaction to them when you first sort of had your first thing with your name on it? That was thrilling. I mean some people are paralyzed, you know, by oh my god, like what do I do? There's so many decisions. Uh, for better or for worse, um, I, I, I don't have that problem. <laughs> um, and uh, it was so exciting to choose, you know, which vineyards to work with, how to participate in the farming of those vineyards, because Peter Sassi is in the Gossiant, we don't own any vineyards. Um, uh, which, by the way, I think, uh, for young winemakers, that is, um, I think it's the best path to um, to first purchase grapes. Because you get to work with lots of different vineyards, mm. you get to work with lots of different growers, you, you just learn a lot. Um, and, but then, yeah, how to make the wine. I mean, creating a label, you know, the storytelling behind that. Peter Sassi, uh, it's a made up word. Um, uh, a play on Peter, who's you know a mentor of mine and a business partner, and Peter Sassi, who I worked for in Washington D.C. He's that chef I talked about earlier, and Sashi, so Pedro Sassi, and Pedro are rocks in Spanish, and Sassi are stones in Italian. And those are very important ingredients in Syrah vineyards. Um, so all of that's just so much fun. I mean, the the, the creation mm -hmm. of a of a brand and the ability to go tell the story and to I mean, just like now, just make customers smile. Mm -hmm. Like that's your first it's your first job, right? Like um, in wine sales, like just elicit a positive response even before they smell or taste the wine. Mm -hmm. um, what was the response to your wine, and, and what was your response to that response? Uh, it's funny because the, the original label is very different than the current label. The original label has a it was a, a bit of a failure. Um, I had a friend of mine draw um, a slingshot on the label. Everyone thought it was a farming implement. They're like, "What is that? Is that like?" Because there's a little stone there too. It's like, is that a potato? Is that like? I was like, oh my god, this is a total <laughs> fail. Um, uh, but it was a slingshot because it was a reference to David and Goliath. Mm -hmm. You know, we were this tiny little winery against all these giants. Um, and so once you told people the story, you know, you 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 got that response. Everyone smiles and like like okay, cool. That part worked. Just. Someone got the label, unfortunately. Um, so, um, but it was it was it still was great, um, and it was a part of the process, part of the journey. Um, the label today is different. Um, it's much much more beautiful. 
and, and more classic. <laughs> What about to the wine itself? Uh, you mentioned you, that you're still kind of at that point where you're you're thinking score, you're thinking big audience, you're thinking. What? what how do people react to the wines? Well, you know, um, one thing that I think I, I don't know if it's so much the case today, but certainly when I was getting started in the wine business, you didn't you didn't understand or you didn't want to sell the wine. You, you, you really looked at yourself as, I'm a, I'm a winemaker. And you actually looked at wine sales as something kind of dirty. Um, in fact, Adam Tolmack, um, when I was leaving the Ojai Vineyard, uh, I think he probably laid down the, his biggest insult to me. He's like, you know what, you'd be a much better wine salesman than a winemaker. I was really pissed off. Um, but he was right in many ways. Um, I, this that just I don't know if that still exists in the wine business, but um, certainly back then, what was noble was to be a winemaker or a vineyard manager. What was what was dirty was being a salesperson, <laughs> which I think is completely ridiculous. Um, so yeah, we were making the wines so that we wouldn't have to sell them, <laughs> hoping to get strong scores. Have customers find us through Robert Parker. I mean, it's a really bad strategy, um, both for both for the business and for your own soul, because you're not you're not following your own inspiration. Mm -hmm. So, what came next? <clears throat> well, next came meeting Rajat Park, mm -hmm. who I don't think there's a man on the planet that um, is more dedicated to following his own path. Um, and it was, it was a joy to, to befriend him and taste with him. I mean, he's an exceptionally talented wine professional. And um, I, I learned so much. Mm -hmm. And uh, he, definitely, you know, uh, creates and follows his own path. And he doesn't, um, it's not that he doesn't consider other people's opinion, because he values other people's opinion very much, particularly his, his peers. Mm -hmm. um, but it's that he, he doesn't, he doesn't um, factor general acceptance as a part of the equation to success. So Sandy was born because he just was determined to make Chardonnay in California that was low alcohol, high in acidity, had fantastic aging potential, and was, most importantly, complex. Picking grapes early and making wines in low alcohol is pretty easy. Um, that's not the difficult part. The difficult part is doing that and still ending up with a, with a wine that is concentrated and elegant and complex. And Raj and I were um, that we were a great match for each other because he brought all of this experience and this repertoire of knowledge of white burgundy. And 
had access to so much amazing wine. We drank so much amazing wine. And uh, it was at a time when, I'm not gonna say it was affordable, but it was a lot more affordable than it was today, than it is today. Um, and so our reference points were just, I still look back on that and think how, um, how lucky we both were. I mean, we were drinking the best wines in the world, and those were our benchmarks. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that is another thing that is very difficult in wine business, particularly for young winemakers. How, how are you supposed to understand great wine if you can't afford great wine? And it's different than just like getting a little taste. Mm -hmm. You know, part of wine is the pain, right? So buying a really expensive bottle of wine and not liking it. It's fundamental to your own education. Figuring out what it is that you like and also figuring out that wine is not consistent. And just because it got a great review or someone said it was great, it might be a bad bottle for a hundred different reasons. Mm. I mean, I have this conversation with my employees all the time about, you know, using natural cork. And this, this came from my friend Peter, past him, who said, oh no, I think, I think TCA is an important part of the wine business. And I was like, explain that to me. It's like, because when you open a bottle of wine, particularly a bottle of wine that you've been holding on to for 20 years, and it's a great bottle of wine, and you maybe even bought it at the winery, and you brought it back with you on the airplane, and it's been sitting in your cellar, there is an element of risk that wine could be corked. And so when you open it, there's a thrill. And if you remove that, you remove that whole part of enjoying wine. And I think he's so right about that. And I think it's part of something that I try and instill now in my own company, which is the wine business is largely about embracing risk from farming, as we've experienced with wildfires and frost, you, you must embrace risk. And in the winery, you make decisions that um, you can either be very prophylactic in your winemaking or you can embrace risk. Mm -hmm. And then also just, yeah, selling it, storytelling, what your label looks like. Um, so yeah, I think that, that um, all those things were uh, part of it. Mm -hmm. So tell me about starting the brand with Raj, and you have you have this vision for what you're going to do. Did you did it feel like a risk at the time? Did it feel like you were challenging the? It wasn't my establishment. Risk. I was very happy to be um, to be a uh, um, you know to support him. Mm -hmm. He was at that time very controversial. Um, you know there was a infamous article about you know basically a a tet with Robert Parker, and he you know, just declared that at all of his restaurants he was no longer going to have any wines over 14 degrees of alcohol. I mean, just was a lightning rod for people saying, oh my god. Um, uh, but you know, that from that he um, gave birth with some of his colleagues to In Pursuit of Balance, mm. which was hugely um, beneficial to the California wine industry. Just, I mean, for, for those of us that were able to participate with In Pursuit of Balance, to be able to go as a, as a group, as a like-minded group of people making very good wines, going to London, going to Tokyo, 
going to New York, um, promoting, you know, American wine, but made in this way. I mean, I remember so many people just being shocked. Like, oh my God, I just, I had no idea that these wines were available. I had no idea that American winemakers were making wine like this. I mean, it was, it was thrilling. Mm -hmm. um, and so I felt so lucky to be part of that. But that was all Raj's risks. I mean, I was along for the ride. Um, and I was facilitating him. I was finding great vineyards to work with, uh, building a great wine program, um, working with him to, to, to make that happen. Mm -hmm. How did you, what did you feel like your role was then? What, what, if, if you're alongside someone who elicits such strong opinion, what's your role in the, in the relationship? Um, well, I was taking my own risks um, tangentially. So in 2007, I planted Domaine de la Cote. And this was a vineyard planted where there were no other vineyards on the far western side of the San Diego Hills where people didn't think you'd get grapes right. Um, I am a very good salesman. And I convinced uh, my partners to spend an extraordinary amount of money on a total, a huge risk. Um, and uh, that will always be for me the, my, um, the wine that I'm most emotionally connected to because I, I just staked so much on it. And I had no, I had no reason to know that it would be successful other than I, I conceptualized it. <laughs> And, um, and we went through many ups and downs. Um, it has been a really difficult uh, experience. But today, um, you know, Raj and I, we, I, I planted Domain Locote in 2007. Raj joined me at Domain Locote in 2013. So, um, you know, we joined forces knowing that it was the right thing to do for the winery. Um, and at that time, I was, I was still very much in that, like, well, I'm, my job is to make the wines. And, and I was going headfirst into also, like, developing vineyards. Mm -hmm. Like, how to develop it, how, how to think about planting vineyards in a, in a novel way um, in California. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you have to make so many consequential choices when you plant a vineyard that you're going to live with for a very long time. And so, I mean, I look back on that. There's no way I could do it today. I was just too much doubt. And I was 35 years old, and I didn't have any doubt. I was you know, <laughs> a genius. Um, uh, that was reckless, but it was to my advantage because... Um, I was so sure of myself. So sure, I mean, I think you have to be. You just have to be. Um, and so it wasn't like just dipping our toe in the water. It was like going all in. 4,000 vines to the acre. You know, just, uh, just very, um, a, a really, uh, you know, what is it, in roulette. You know, putting the, your bets on double zero. Like, lowest odds of 
winning, but if you do, it's going to be great. Mm -hmm. And um, bringing Raj in the picture was a way to really help promote Domingo Lacour because he fell in love with the vineyards, as I did, fell in love with the wines, um, recognized very early, like, whoa, this is, this doesn't taste like anything else in California. Mm. And, um, and so, we kind of, that's, that was our relationship. We were working um, kind of in tandem with Sandy and Domino Lacote. Sandy kind of being you know, his brainchild, Domino Lacote being mine, mm -hmm. and then helping each other promote our, our dreams. So I'm curious about that that confidence you mentioned. Uh, you don't strike me as someone who who just would just do something without thinking through and looking looking at and having having a reason behind. So what made you think it would work? What what where where did that confidence come from? And when you're planning something like Domaine La Cote, where why what 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 about that spot? What about that style? Um, it had to do with understanding that all the wines that I liked. All the wines that I loved to drink um, were wines that came from vineyards that had very naturally low yields, either because the vines were very, very old or because it was planted in soil that was, you know, very weak in terms of its fertility. Mm -hmm. And so the vines were, like, you go to a Cote Routine, it's vineyards planted on pure granite, steep hillsides, no soil. And you look at these tiny little vines and these small amount of fruit that was being produced by each vine. And you go to Burgundy and you look at old vines that are producing also a very small amount of grapes and you go and you taste the vines and it just started to really come into focus for me. It's like, oh, okay. So low vigor, low yields leads to the kind of raw material that I wanted to work with. And then Raj and I, as wine drinkers, were um, very much uh, aligned in appreciating Burgundy from cooler vintages. Um, we, we always, you know, at that time, you know, in the mid-2000s, you know, 90, 1990 was kind of like, the great vintage in Burgundy, the total Parker vintage, like really opulent wines. And I remember Raj and I drinking a lot of those and just being like, you know, it's just, we like the cooler vintages. <laughs> and Domaine Lacote, um, during the summer, average temperatures, 70 degrees, um, it's really cold. And so it's like having a cool vintage every year. Mm -hmm. And so it was those two things. Naturally low yields, always working with a cool vintage. That, and the site is just, it's a very beautiful place, like Southern Springs. Um, and I just think that has a power. And I, I don't, you know, it's nice to think that maybe the vines have this sense too that they're in a beautiful place. Probably not. But so are the people. All the people who have to touch those vines, mm -hmm. farm them, and make wine from them. There's no question in my mind that that, that influences the final product. That's just that connection, like just you, you have a certain reverence. Because mm -hmm. you're like, wow, this place is so beautiful. I, I have to work a little bit harder. I have to 
really do my job at you know mm-hmm. the, my highest level because this is such a this is such a beautiful place. Can't can't let the place down. Yeah, there's something to that. Yeah. Interesting. So you mentioned ups and downs. Tell me about the rollout from of the wines from there and and, and of how how you felt about them and and how they were received. I mean, we did well on how the wines were received. What I didn't understand was just the costs. Um, so many vines per acre and such low yields and starting off a winery um, from nothing. No history. Um, no one had ever heard of Domaine Lacote. Um, no one had even heard of the San Rita Hills. Um, I, I, I did not appreciate um, and did not um, anticipate mm-hmm. how long it would take. And we got very lucky because obviously Psalm 3 like, just put us on the map and that opened a lot of doors for us. Um, you know, having Janice Robinson say that this is as great as wine as, you know, Bachelet. It just, having such a um, respected critic of wine um, not know that it wasn't Burgundy. Mm -hmm. And that it was, not only that, but it was great Burgundy. Um, it just turned everyone's head. Mm-hmm. And so that was very helpful, but we still were not out of the woods. I mean, costs were like out of control. Um, and they're still out of control. But the difference is that today we can charge enough for the wine to start to balance those costs. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's just something that, you know, um, again, like if I had gone to business school, um, I would have never done it. I would have modeled the business, and my financial partners would have said, like, yeah, you're insane. Good luck. We're not doing that. Go find someone else. <laughs> um, so, you know, that's, that's part of it, is mm-hmm. just some of that naivete is important, but particularly to starting new things. <laughs> today, like, that's why I just couldn't do it today. Today, I know too much. <laughs> Today I run, you know, four wineries. Um, I'm thinking about sales and revenue and mm-hmm. debt all the time. Um, it would it would inhibit me. Mm-hmm. But that's why I think, in large part, doing new things in the wine business is for young people. Having some recklessness is good. Talk about obviously the, the the sort of the price rising to meet to to, the, to meet the cost of, of your wine. Uh, I'm curious about that from a from a perspective of a, of someone who who has come up in the business. How do you feel about having to having prices be at that point? Do you feel is that a point of pride? Is that a point of how does how does that make you feel? It's strange. You know, Evening Land was started by Mark Tarlov. Um, and he just crashed onto the scene here and infuriated the local community, both by 
acquiring the lease on Seven Springs and Andam and deciding to turn it into a monopole. So no longer selling grapes to anybody. Also, grossly overpaying on the lease. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how he got it. Um, the McDonald family did the right thing. They, they went to all of their customers and said, you want to pay the same as this guy wants to pay, we'd be very happy to lease it to you because he's an outsider and we've been working with you for a long time. Um, and many of them were very upset. Um, none of them said, you know, Al, good for you. You've been doing this for a long time. Like you deserve all of that. I, I, I can't make that work. No, they were mad at him, <laughs> and then they were mad at Mark Tarloff. And I understand the feelings, but price is something that, unfortunately, um, is important. <laughs> depending on how ambitious the winery is and what it wants to do. Um, but people, I think, view it as, well, you just think you're better than the rest of us. And no, it's, this is what we have to do to make it work. Hmm. Um, and so then you know, he, he insulted the community again by releasing Sumam in 2007 at $120 a bottle. And everyone was like, you are out of your mind. It was fascinating that no one looked at that and said, you know what? That's great. Dominique Lafong, Seven Springs, $120 for Oregon Chardonnay. Like, I hope, you, I hope that's successful. Because that's just going to open the door for the rest of us to come in behind that mm -hmm. and charge 60 or $70, like half. Um, but way more than they were able to get before. So I think, I, I, I don't know, like, um, I don't have a problem with it because all the stories that I read in the wine industry, Angelo Gaia charging five times as much for his, you know, Barbaresco than even his neighbors in Borolo, which was supposed to be a better commune. Everyone was so mad at him. And La Lubis Loire charging huge amounts of money for her wine and everyone being so upset. But these people were instrumental in lifting the whole Appalachia. I think today people view it differently. I think people today um, are more um, excited. People want to know, well, what, what is the limit? And none of us know, like, what is the limit? How much can you charge for a bottle of Oregon Pinot Noir Chardonnay? Um, now, the thing about pricing is that it has I mean, that kind of pricing is tied to scarcity. So um, I think that is something that, you know, we have an advantage at Domino Coat with that because the San Rio Hills is not that big. We don't produce that much wine in San Rio Hills. And then on top of that, we don't produce that much wine at Domino Coat. And um, there are not a lot of people that make wine like that wine. In Oregon, it's a little bit more challenging because um, the Appalachians um, are well-formed, the, the sub-Appalachians. Um, but there's not, a, there's not a sense of scarcity. Mm -hmm. There's not a sense of like, um, wow, like, you know, if you, don't, if you don't jump on that wine, you're never going to be able to 
see it again kind of thing. Um, it will come. I know it will. Um, but I think that, you know, for me, like, Raj and I, even though we have um, a financial partner, um, you know, we are not wealthy people. And our wineries, we're forced to run them as businesses. And so when we make investments, those are debts that we um, carry forward with us. And so it's important for what we want to do that we can, we can achieve the pricing because it just it, it helps us make decisions that we know are the right decisions for you know, planting new vineyards and farming it the way we want to farm and just exploring the, the potential. So you mentioned, obviously, this place, Seven Springs, Evening Land. What point does Oregon be, you mentioned Oregon was a place you started looking for a job. At what point does Oregon become part of the story again? So, in, um, so I was involved with Evening Land in 2005. Um, I made the first wine from Mark Tarlov um, from the Occidental Vineyard. And so um, I've you know, been part of the Evening Land story since day one. I was never responsible for the wines here um, at the winery in Oregon until 2014. Uh, Raj and I uh, took over the program, that vintage, both farming and winery. And, um, you know, it was an easy decision when our, our financial partner wanted, he, he just saw what we were doing in California and he, he he <laughs> he is amazed at how expensive wine business is to participate in. Um, but he was so um, he loves the passion um, and the enthusiasm. And so he saw that in me and Raj um, with Domingo Coat, and you know, he, I think he he wanted to give Evenland that opportunity. There's just the, just a that level of um, of excitement. Mm -hmm. And Raj and I, you know, I mean, this is an historic vineyard, um, and and we we had ideas. Um, we believe very much in Oregon Chardonnay. Um, we were greatly helped by the wines that Dominique Lafon made at Evenland. They were fantastic. It was really clear that there was something extraordinarily special. Um, and we wanted to explore that further here at Seven Springs. And then we we also had a lot of ideas about Pinot Noir in Oregon, too. Um, and, you know, Raj is someone who, his approach to winemaking, like, the, the, the pathway to finding the wine is the opposite of mine. Um, I started, and it has to do with our, our, when we entered into the wine business on a kind of a winemaking level, I've always started with you, 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 
maybe extract a little bit too much. Um, not intentionally, but just because you're trying to get the most. And if the wine is out of balance, uh, a little coarse, uh, doesn't have that elegance, then, then you begin to refine, to, to find, to find the, the correct um, expression. Raj's is the opposite. Um, he always likes to extract extremely lightly. And then as he gets to know the site and the vineyard, begin to have more confidence to pull more from the grapes. Um, that was our, 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 our early history together. So when we took over Domingo Coke, I mean, uh, Evingland in 2014, um, we had already um, had so many discussions about this pathway and um, how, to find, how to find the wine, you know, our wine. And um, we were always big fans of Seven Springs Pinot Noirs, but we also found them to be rustic. Um, and we knew that the wines aged exceptionally well, but straight out of the gates, they kind of had this um, coarseness to them. And so we came into it immediately to try and find um, that lighter touch. <laughs> And it's been hard because 2015 was very dry and hot. 2018, very dry, hot. And so we have not been successful every vintage, but, um, but 17 and 19, now 21, um, we really are, we're so happy with, with, the, with finding the way to, to make the wines here um, just softer and more charming. Um, maybe we're sacrificing the ageability of the wine, but um, I think we believe so much in the ageability of the Chardonnays that you know, we're, we're okay with that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I mean, everyone has their own idea of what is a beautiful wine and how to make a beautiful wine. Um, I've really, I've really learned from Raj that you just you know, don't pay attention to what other people say. Just do what, do what, you do what you think is is best. And I think it takes it takes a lot of it takes a lot of drinking wine to get there. I mean, I, I saw that in him. His confidence came from just drinking so much wine. Mm -hmm. And as I've had time to catch up, <laughs> drink a lot of wine too. Um, it's you know I, I can feel the same way now. Mm -hmm. It's just some, it's impossible when you're starting out to have that because you just don't you don't have the experience. Mm -hmm. You haven't tasted enough wine mm -hmm. to really know like yes that to me is what is that's the definition of balance. That's the definition of elegance. That's the definition of like just lift. Mm -hmm. You know combination of concentration, power, but still being light on its feet, effortless. 
So you had gone from your last project where you had created a vineyard where nothing had been before to taking over, as you mentioned, an established and fairly legendary vineyard. Tell me about your impression of the vineyard as you were starting to work here. Mm -hmm. uh, what, what did it look like to you and, and what did you kind of foresee in terms of changes or tweaks you wanted to make to it to bring out the best? I mean, I think most people um, probably don't appreciate that we're California winemakers. Um, I very much appreciate that we're California winemakers. I, I think we bring our perspective here. And I think that something that I recognized very quickly is that, and I think most people don't know this, Domino Code is a much cooler climate than Lama Valley, than the Olamide Hills, by a long shot. And so I think because we have palm trees in California, people think that it's, you know, like the desert. Um, I don't think they understand that um, Russia are very, very um, uh, experienced now in growing grapes in extremely cool climate. And this is not a cool climate. Um, this is actually a very warm growing season. And it's a short season. Mm -hmm. So bud break is late and harvest can be quite early if it rains. So you have a, a shorter amount of time um, to work with the grapes, um, ripening the grapes, versus in California, you have a very long period of time. Mm -hmm. um, and so we were able to ascertain very quickly, like, okay, so these are the, these are the fundamental qualities of this terroir. Um, deep soils, have a lot of water holding capacity, very different from what I'm used to in California. Um, very warm, and, and very warm at, at the end of the day, mm -hmm. six, seven o'clock. I mean, that was, here they're very used to it, but for me, I was like, that's, it's very unusual. Uh, most, most places in the world that grow grapes, the warmest time of day is one o'clock. Mm -hmm. Therefore, that's why most vineyards are planted on a north-south axis, because you're trying to protect the grapes at solar noon, which is when there's the most heat, the most radiation. But here, that happens at 6 p.m. And people still plant their rows north-south. Here is an exceptional site because a lot of our vineyards, particularly the Sumon vineyards, are planted east-west. And Raj and I were able to quickly see that, like, look, 6 p.m., all the grapes are in the shadow because the sun is setting, mm -hmm. it's you know, low on the horizon, and we're also on an east-facing slope, so that also helps with protecting the grapes from that intense heat. And so I think that, um, that was a real benefit, um, coming to it with that that perspective, because it was so different than what we were used to. Um, so our relationship here is not, we didn't create this place, we're stewards, but we have a fresh perspective. And so we were able to come here and think about it differently. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you mentioned before we started filming that you, that you're, that you now own the vineyards here. So tell me about how that came to be. and. And once they were yours, what what were the first things you had to do? Uh, well, it was a, it's a huge accomplishment for us. Um, 
we had a 15-year lease. And um, the business has been hard to run. I mean, it's been financially uh, very challenging. But um, we knew that there's so much potential here. And so um, we exercised our option. Um, and we purchased the, both, both properties. And it has, it has started to change my relationship. Because one of the things that I, um, one of the things that is also really wonderful about um, the domestic wine industry, American wine industry, is that many of the people who own vineyards own a lot of land. So, you know, Burgundy, you own four rows of little vineyard. I, it, it, your, your relationship to the environment is really different when you have a very small piece mm -hmm. or you're just buying grapes or even if you're just leasing a vineyard. Like, we were just leasing the vineyards here. So we didn't have to think about being custodians of the whole 240 acres. We were only concerned with the vineyards. Now, um, I'm very preoccupied with um, land stewardship. Mm -hmm. We have this um, tremendous wildlife corridor along Kings Creek that is on our property. And um, now understanding that our role here is to also protect that and to protect the vineyards and to try and build something that will outlast our lifetimes, mm -hmm. that has completely changed the relationship that we have to this place. And um, not so much how we make the wines, but how we talk about the wines and how, what we want to do. I think we're a little more, I'm a little more patient with making sure that um, we're taking the right steps. Um, because there's no question in my mind that this vineyard will be part of the Oregon wine industry for hopefully forever. It means it's just in a truly amazing site. <laughs> Tell me about your, your impressions of the Oregon wine industry, both while you were adjacent to it and interacting with it, and then once you became more involved in it. What were the first impressions? What did you think of Oregon's industry, and, and how have you seen it change and grow as you've been aware of it? I mean, I just think in the last uh, 10 years, the Oregon wine industry has become such an exciting place. Um, I know it, it, it ruffles a lot of feathers, but it's good that outside investments coming into the Willamette Valley. That brings fresh perspective. It brings um, more attention and more opportunity for everybody. Um, I know that it increases costs for land and people feel um, that they can't participate. And that that's an unfortunate consequence. But in the long run, it's good. and. Just to see like what people are doing at Hood River, also just the expansion of getting outside of Willamette Valley and people exploring different grape varieties, um, all the wonderful Chardonnays that are now being produced from a lot of different um, winemakers. 
Um, it's just uh, super exciting. Um, and I think that, that maybe one of the, um, when Raj and I first started coming here to Oregon in 2007, uh, I think something that we, we, it wasn't just Oregon, I mean it was, it was, I mean, it was most of the American wine scene, I think. There wasn't, you know, people, people had maybe traveled to Burgundy once. Um, they would have never gone to Bordeaux. Um, they certainly wouldn't have come down to California. Um, and that has changed. And that is good. <laughs> because it's impossible to get better at this wine business, which is an oxymoron, um, if you don't um, explore mm -hmm. and particularly understand, um, you know, find those wines that really, that move you and then go visit those people and understand what they're doing because you're going to learn a lot mm -hmm. and you're going to bring that back and you're not going to maybe apply it exactly, but you're going to apply pieces of it and it's going to inform your winemaking, your grape growing and it's going to influence you and it's going to create conversations with colleagues that also feel the same way and that is all just like hugely beneficial um, to the progress of an appellation and to the development of, of vineyards and wineries and brands and domains. So I think that that, you know, IPNC always brought people here but we didn't see a lot of people from here going out. Mm -hmm. And we see that a lot more now. Um, you know, that's the thing about being a Californian, right? Is like you're never really like from anywhere. Most people in California are transplants. I mean, Raj is from India. <laughs> and you know, I'm half Japanese. And, um, there's a real, we really embrace, particularly for me and Raj, we embrace racial diversity and we embrace traveling and not really um, where we have homes, but but we're all, always on the road. Um, and here, a lot of people feel very, um, there's a strong sense of community, which is wonderful, um, but there's not the same, um, not that same kind of um, embrace of diversity, particularly racial diversity, and also the sense of seeing the adventure of seeing what other people are doing and appreciating what other people are doing, even though it might be very different than what, what you do. Leads me nicely to my next question. You talked about <clears throat> you're on the road a lot. You have, you mentioned you own four different things spread out geographically. Tell me about that. How, how do you give everything its due time and due effort and, and feel like you're on top of things while also sort of maintaining sanity? The wine quality is the barometer. So as long as the wine quality is continually improving and getting better, um, even though there's a lot of other things that are slipping um, I feel I, I can go to bed at night. Mm -hmm. um, if the wine quality is suffering, then that's a real check. It's like, okay, 
need to check in, need to maybe slow down, need to refocus, recenter. Um, I was got into this business as a winemaker, and I think I'll always use that as my it's my north star. It's my barometer. It's my way of making sure that we're doing a good job. So we talked. You talked earlier about something that I've, I've we've heard people talk about before a little bit, but not quite the same way you talked about the, the wrong grapes, the wrong places. So I'm curious about as you've gotten to explore Oregon and, and the valley. Um, what do you think about what we've done here so far, and, and what do you think about the future? Uh, what what will the future kind of uh, showcase for Oregon, or, or just what what will be discovered here? Well, it's hard because um, obviously, you know, when you think about growing grapes and planting a vineyard, um, Pinot Noir is a natural fit because you know that you can get the price. Hmm. Um, there are a lot of other grape varieties that would do really well here, but obviously some of them are very obscure, um, and it's hard to get the price. Um, so, so I think that it's um, it'll largely fall to the people who aren't businessmen and businesswomen who just want to try and make the best trousseau or the best Chenin Blanc or the you know, best Gamay or the best Riesling or Sauvignon Blanc. I mean, there's obviously so many varieties that would do so well here. Um, but you have the spirit there has to just be that you're doing that not because it's what maybe makes the most business sense, but because you're just so passionate about mm -hmm. it. And enough people do that, and then the price comes. So that's, and that's been the story with basically so many Appalachians in California, too, you know? Um, and I think that uh, that's, that's, a, that's a tremendous opportunity uh, for the Willamette Valley and, all, and all, just all the Appalachians to the whole state. Um, you know, there's just a, that's what's so, that's what's so exciting, there's no limits. You know, it's not like Burgundy. It's not like the Northern Rhone Valley. It's not like a lot of places in Europe where it's pretty much been predetermined. Mm -hmm. Here, nothing is predetermined, which is amazing. Um, and it's not, I don't think it's our job anymore um, to do that. Um, but it will be for the next generation. Um, there should be there should be some of that rebellion. Like, why do we only grow Pinot Noir and Chardonnay here? Like, why don't we grow all these other cool varieties? And and not as a, like just an experiment or a hobby, mm -hmm. but actually really lean into it. Right? Like, pick a an amazing site and plant something like Sauvignon Blanc or Chenin Blanc. You know, on a on a site where everyone's telling you, I can't believe you're doing that. Why you should be planting Pinot Noir there? Or at least Chardonnay. They're like, no, I'm gonna do this. Like that. That's something that would be thrilling. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Earlier, you brought up some of the the weather issues we've had, or, or issues, climate issues we've had recently. I'm curious about sort of 2020 from your perspective. Obviously, a, a, a big a big year and a, and a big bad year. Uh, 
Oregon suffering its first real wildfire in the valley sort of uh, um, event during that harvest. Uh, tell me about how you navigated 2020, what the effects were and, and sort of the, the, the decisions and pivots you had to make because of the pandemic, because of the smoke, how you came out the other side. Well, we declassified the vintage, basically. Uh, we did make some wine and we did bottle some wine, but we sold it all as very inexpensive wine. I think the hardest thing about it was that, A, it's subjective. So some people think their wines are fine and other people think their wines are bad. Um, it's um, location, <laughs> you know, some areas were worse affected than other areas. Some grape varieties were affected worse than other mm -hmm. grape varieties. So it's, I, I don't think we're through it at all. Um, it was traumatic vintage, but I think we're going to be, because people bought a lot of wine, and people will be drinking those wines years from now, and some of them will be great, and some of them will be smoke-tainted, and that's really confusing for the consumer. And once you sell that wine, you can't take it back. You know, it may be a rare winery would reach out to all of their customers and be like, if you have any bottles of 2020, we'll buy them all back from you. I mean, I can't, it's unheard of. Mm -hmm. um, but um, it's, it's really troubling. And I mean, we all know that it's not the last wildfire that's gonna happen to Oregon. I'd, I'd like to see the, I mean, <laughs> you know, the other huge advantage we have is that um, like, in most European wine regions, the government is hugely supportive of their wine industry through subsidies and promotion, marketing. I mean, our government does nothing for us. And that was a real example of where the state of Oregon and the federal government could have been, could have helped wineries make the decisions that maybe they felt were really hard for them to make financially. Mm -hmm. You know, we had to rely on crop insurance, that just should have been almost like a FEMA type thing. Like, this sector got devastated, um, you know, here's a bailout. Because in the long run, we don't want to hurt this industry. We don't want to hurt the reputation of this industry. We don't want to, we don't want wineries to, to suffer financially because of one event. So, I, but that's someone else's fight. Not fight. <laughs> Add to the next generation list there, along with there. Yeah, a lot of work to do, don't <laughs> All right, so a couple questions left for you. Uh, first one is we talked about the future for Oregon. Tell me about the future for yourself. Uh, what, what, what's, what's, what are you looking at on the horizon? What's coming next? And sort of what are you looking forward to? Um, well, so um, we have kind of an interesting structure at our wineries. Um, the, the wineries are um, all uh, independent entities, um, but they don't have any staff. Um, the staff is all hired by my company, which is called Provenage. Um, and it, it's become very clear to me that the wine industry has become so expensive. The barrier of entry is, is so much higher than when I started my own brand in 2003 that for young people who don't have trust funds, um, it's getting progressively harder mm -hmm. to be an entrepreneur 
and a business owner in the wine industry. Um, so Provenage um, is my kind of solution to that. Um, you know, I hope to, um, in the coming years, to um, invite uh, my employees who want to participate at an ownership level um, to, to come in and, and participate in the wine business in the way that they can um, most uh, economically mm -hmm. and use their skills and their talents to help lots of entities, winery owners, vineyard owners um, achieve their goals and their aspirations. Um, and by being a, a bigger team, we will collaborate more, um, we will learn more, we'll have the opportunity to work with many talented people um, and also integrate mm -hmm. sales and marketing with production, with operations and farming so that um, there's a true kind of cohesiveness of the whole life cycle of wine, not just uh, part of it. So that's that's the future um, that I'm focused on for the the humans. Mm -hmm. um, for the properties, it's just you know, um, yeah, achieving, trying to achieve legacy. Never heard it put quite that way before. Achieve legacy. I like that. I like that. All right. So I said earlier that I was going to ask you why is your wine different. So tell us. Why is your wine different? Uh, I, I honestly think it's because of, um, of the, the tremendous people that uh, I get to work with. Um, you know, Raj, Raj and I, um, I know our collaboration has led to so many conversations and discussions and, um, and dreams. And there's no way I could have had those dreams on my own. And today we have a lot of new people participating in those conversations. And I, I just, I think it's invaluable um, to, to, to believing that you can always do better, believing that you can always um, find even more um, magic and elegance and beauty and deliciousness in a bottle of wine. Yeah. <laughs> like it. All right. All the questions that I have for you. Great. Anything I didn't ask that I should have? Anything we didn't oh cover? God, I think I talked way too much. <laughs> not even. Not even. We could have kept going. Thank you so much for your time, for your hospitality, for sharing your wine with us. It was very, very generous of you. Uh, we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. 
Special thanks to all the Linfield Archives students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.